This is episode 50 of Everyday Wellness, the whole female health approach with midwife Courtney Hassaman. I'm Dr. Kelly Donahue, clinical health psychologist and mind-body coach, here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, functional nutritionist and nurse practitioner. Together, we have over 25 years of combined experience in wellness, nutrition, nursing, and psychology. Our goal here is to share easy strategies to help as many people as possible become healthier. You can help us attain this goal by leaving us a rating and review on iTunes. The process takes just a few minutes, and it allows our podcast to be seen when listeners like you are searching for a high-quality health and wellness podcast. We are so grateful that you are here. And now, let's get started. Welcome to Everyday Wellness. Wellness is the result of the decisions that you make every day. It's your mindset and the thoughts you believe. Wellness is the food you put in your body and the relationship you have with yourself and others. Wellness is your work and meaning. Join us on Everyday Wellness as we explore ways that you can choose wellness today. Hey, good morning. Today we have Courtney Hassaman. She is a certified nurse midwife, nurse practitioner, and functional nutritionist. And she provides integrative healthcare for women and nutritional therapy specializing in both hormonal and reproductive health. She is also a personal friend of mine, and she cares for women locally where we are in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. She's also passionate about providing I love this unhurried, highly personalized, comprehensive care for women. She's also a full-time mom and homeschooler. I find that amazing. To four kiddos between the ages of five and 14. Thank you for carving out some time in your morning to be with us today. Absolutely. Cynthia, thank you so much, Kelly and Cynthia, for having me. This is fantastic. We are excited to get started. And just in that intro alone, we could go in a number of different directions. <laughs> but we moms we... have so much to talk about, don't That's we? That's true. Do. We all do. But before we even get there, I want to hear a little bit more about your story. Can you tell us how you transitioned from having a degree in molecular biology, no small feat there, mm-hmm. to naturopathic medicine and becoming a certified nurse midwife? Yes, yes, sure. Um, Well, I had always been interested in science. And, you know, I think as you grow up, you don't quite realize all all the different career options there are until you live your life a little bit. So, um, you know, through college, I was pursuing my love for science and figuring out that I really didn't want to do research. I really loved people. I liked working with people. And, um, And at a certain point, I recognize, okay, so this molecular biology is great, but I don't think I'd like to, you know, sit quietly uh, in a lab somewhere. So I had always been interested in complementary medicine and health and nutrition. Um, And so I really just was searching for something that I thought would fit both my love of science and my love of holistic medicine. And um, really, I had discovered naturopathic medicine and was just so fascinated by 
um, the way it branches um, science, Western medicine, and also holistic healing. So that's sort of, uh, I would say, by my junior year of college, how I decided to focus myself. And immediately after graduating, I went to study naturopathic medicine which is fantastic, and I Mm -hmm. loved. Um, But it was there that I really learned more about midwifery, which was not a subject I had any exposure to Mm -hmm. much before then. And and I was just so impressed at um, uh, the philosophy behind being a midwife, uh, advocating for women, supporting the whole women, um, the whole woman. So I just decided... Uh, it was actually a little more of a practical decision that that would be a better route for me to go. Staying uh, into naturopathic medicine would be a big commitment of time. And also, practically speaking, even now, naturopathic physicians are licensed state by state. Mm-hmm. And um, at that time, my husband, who was not yet my husband, we weren't sure where we were going to end up landing and raising our family. And so I was a little concerned that if I finished that degree, what if I ended up moving into a location that didn't license Smart. Um, NDs? And so I figured the, the nurse practitioner route was the way to go. And no matter where I ended up, you can never go wrong with a career mm-hmm. in nursing <laughs> um, or being an NP. And I'm so glad I did because... Um, being a nurse midwife just aligns really all of my passions together, science, uh, Western medicine, holistic healing, advocating for women. So it was it was just a wonderful path. I love that, you know, and I think it's so important um, to recognize that, you know, when you go off to college at 17 or 18 years old, you may not really know what you want to do. Uh, And I think we force so many young people to make decisions so early, and then they end up being unfulfilled or unhappy. So good for you that you kind of changed the trajectory of where you were going. I too am a, I always say it's a second degree person. I had a degree in uh, international affairs and got into law school, decided not to go. Oh my best decision I ever made in my life. No offense to any attorneys that are listening to this, but it would not have been the right path for me. Um, And kind of stumbled into, um, you know, pre-med for a couple years, I took pre-med classes. And then uh, a professor looked at me and said, what in the heck are you doing? You don't really you're not like the typical undergraduate that's taking pre-meds. And so he actually said, you know, my my sister's a nurse practitioner, and she's really happy. She has a lot of autonomy. I'd never even thought about going into nursing. And one of the best decisions I could have ever made. You know, the best decision I ever made was not going to law school. Next really good decision I made uh, was going into nursing because as you said, you have so much flexibility throughout your career. I mean, I'm a good example of that. And I think that you just, there's no better feeling to me um, than being able to serve patients, serve women, serve, you know, whomever your population is in a capacity where it brings you joy, like it's joyful to help people, it's joyful to figure out, you know, problems that are going on. Um, And so I'm I'm glad that you also, you know, made that transition. It's funny when you said, you know, molecular biology, and I thought, well, clearly, you know, intellectually, I can see that. But with many, many friends who got doctorates when I was um, at the big research hospital I trained at, um, I can't imagine you have too much personality to be in a lab. Um, You just you need that needs to (laughs) that joy needs to be shared with others. So yeah, and my husband who also does molecular biology loves sitting quietly in a Mm -hmm. lab and not talking to people. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) he and I are opposites like that, but the same. I think it's so great that you're able to apply your 
um, kind of academic loves with a good fit for your personality. And Mm -hmm. the even better part is I'm sure that that comes through to your patients. Uh, Yes, I think so, too. I think especially women who seek out holistic care or complementary care uh, appreciate somebody, you you know this, uh, appreciate somebody who has a background in Mm -hmm. medicine, who understands Western medicine, Mm -hmm. who can give them a balanced view and approach to different options. So, so yes, thank you for that, Kelly. I I agree. It's important. Yeah. And you not only have the background in medicine, but you also have training in nutrition. Can you talk a little bit about how you add that to the work that you do with your patients? Yes. So midwives by nature are all about preventive medicine. That's really what we do. We know that um, healthy women, especially in pregnancy and birth, um, have better outcomes. And so that's a that's a very natural outworking as a midwife to do nutrition and prevention. Um, when I was interested in beginning my own business, I really wanted um, additional certification and also sort of the methodology of how to do this most effectively with women one-on-one. And so um, I am a um, newly soon-to-be nutritional therapy consultant. This month I finish up my certification. And uh, that's really just given me the tools to be able to to um, take my time and effectively work with women um, on, on, on changing habits and looking at the whole body and really using food as, as root medicine. And it's so important, you know, I know for someone like myself, and and all of my Western medicine experience was in ER medicine and cardiology, that when I started kind of making those conjectures, making those connections, realizing how truly, absolutely crucial it is, to change the way we eat, impact our health and benefit in beneficial ways. Um, that was life altering for me. I mean, that mm-hmm. completely put me on a, a different trajectory. Up until that point, I was very much the it has to be evidence based, I have to have read it in a in a journal, um, it has to be uh, something empirically that's created in a lab. And I've just come to find out that there's more to it than that, that, um, you know, part of being a self evolved practitioner or provider is acknowledging that the longer you practice, you just start to see things very, very differently. And and interestingly enough, I love that the nurse midwifery uh, perspective is a little bit more holistic from the get go, whereas I feel like the NP piece, we were very Western medicine, you know, here's a symptom, here's a pill, Um, you know, this is that's just the the general mentality in in which we are trained in. Um, But I love that, you know, the the nurse midwife side of things is a little bit more open minded um, from the get go, because I think that probably has given you a different lens with which to practice with. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, we understand that a woman's emotional state, the stress going on in her life, all, you know, all these things um, add up to, to um, make her who she is, and it affects her um, in her health. I, you know, I think one of the biggest barriers we face in incorporating nutrition into our practice, and I'm sure you both would agree, is time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just, we don't have time in a regular medical model to, to do the teaching that we wanted to do. So, you know, in a regular OB appointment with a woman, I would have a 15 minute time slot. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm lucky if I see her eyeball to eyeball for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's hard to get in a lot of teaching during that time. And that was especially true with, um, gynecology, you know, mm-hmm. I might see somebody for a problem visit in a 15 minute time slot. And again, in a short period of time, I had to do all of my assessment. Um, and it left very little time for teaching. So even though many of us 
have intentions, you mm-hmm. know, of doing that teaching. I think a regular medical system has made it so hard for us to really have time to make that effective for women. And it's and, and it's very hard. I'm sorry, Kelly. It's it's um it's very difficult because we've also conditioned we've been conditioned as a society that we don't know how to cook. We don't have time to cook. Um, the processed food industry will take care of that for us. And so, you know, when I would try to have conversations with my cardiology population. 90% of the time, their eyes would glaze over. They're like, I don't, I can't do that. Um, I, you know, I, I have to, you know, insert whatever it is, you know, my diabetic patients that would be um, seeing a diabetic specialist, and and they would tell me they were having five or six bananas a day. And I'm like, okay, we really need to ratchet this back. We need yeah. to start with the basics. But I think there's a lot of people who feel very um, unempowered to um, know how to cook healthfully for themselves or their families or, you know, prioritizing things over, um, you know, meal prep over watching. And I don't want to be getting any hate mail about Game of Thrones, for example, um, you know, catching up and binging on Game of Thrones episodes. That's what everyone's been tweeting about this whole week. Um, but yeah, it definitely can be challenging. But I think it's so important too, and the the time spent talking about that will save you so many more interventional appointments down the road right. when you're able to focus on this prevention piece. Yeah, right. Which it sounds like a big part of your job really does that. Right, right. And when when planning to um, to begin my own business, that the the biggest issue for me was just time. I wanted mm-hmm. time with women, time to be able to sit down and have those meaningful conversations and teachings that you just you don't you don't get all the time in regular office appointments. And it's a shame that that it's been boiled down to. Um, you know, healthcare providers feeling like they've got to be on a clock. Um, they have to be cognizant. They've got so many people they have to see in a given day. They've got, you know, right. an angry patient that's sitting two doors down because they're 20 minutes, you're, they're waiting an extra 20 minutes. Um, I, I recall, um, and I, I can bring myself back to those moments where you're just trying to elicit as much information as you can and provide as good of care as you can right. under the circumstances that you're given. Right, exactly. <laughs> You're like, okay, all right, all right. Mm. It can definitely be a challenge. You do have more time. Can you kind of walk us through what an appointment would look like with you and what types of issues women come to you wanting help with? Sure. Yeah, when I had mentioned that I love the unhurried, highly personalized, comprehensive care. um, Yeah, that's that's really the name of my new game, which I just love. So um, I allow two hours for a first visit. Wow. and you might not need all that time, but really I have found that I, I can't do it in less than an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I greet somebody at the front door to my office building. By the time they come in, settle down, I'm the one reviewing all of your health history in detail. And let me tell you that when you are in comfortable space with a woman, a healthcare provider that you trust, you, you share so much more information mm-hmm. than you yeah. would if you just had to check a box and talk with that about, you know, some personal subject, and you don't want to share that with four other people before you actually reach your healthcare mm-hmm. provider. So mm-hmm. we have a lot of um, really thorough health history. And, um, and then I'm the one doing your vital signs. And I'm the one doing your physical exam, maybe even drawing your blood at the end of the visit doing all of your follow up. So 
it, it really does take time, I think, to do that um, thoroughly and accurately and, and to give women time to speak. So I do allow two hours for a first visit, and depending on uncomplicated or complicated um, the woman's health needs are, I'm, I would take one to two hours during that time. Uh, and really, it's just a lot about listening and a mm-hmm. lot of thorough um, history taking. Yeah. It's really a blessing that you have created that kind of opportunity, not only for yourself, because it sounds as if it brings you again, we go back to that, you know, that joyful feeling of serving others. But what an incredible gift to your patients as well, because I I feel like the one thing that I recall, um, you know, at working as an NP for 16 years was how desperate patients were for real connection. Oh my goodness! That yes. that and and I always say I want to be very mindful and and careful about not criticizing my Western medicine trained peers because we're all warriors. We're all doing the best we can. Mm-hmm. But um, as nurses and as as advanced practice nurses. Uh, patients are really desperate for those connections because they're not getting the real connection that they need with their healthcare providers generally right. um, and how important that can be. And I, and I speak from, now I speak from both sides. I speak from um, the healthcare provider piece, but then also having been a patient this year, um, I, I had the experience and I was telling Kelly this earlier, um, I, I saw my surgeon this week. And so she's a female. And I was so grateful that it was her that was taking care of me because she was seeing me two and three times a day in the hospital and was wonderful. So compassionate, kind and caring, and obviously very skilled. And I got very emotional in the office with her. And I knew it made her a little uncomfortable. But I said, I have to thank you for saving my life. And I, I said, I, I'm not a very emotional person. But I just have to say it out loud, because how rarely do we get to have those real authentic connections with our patients? Yeah. And I wanted her to have that. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's so important. And patients really need that. They really, really do. I see that now more than ever. Women uh, deserve that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think women deserve that kind of care. I think they deserve somebody to listen to them. So mm-hmm. it is my privilege mm-hmm. and pleasure to listen to women and really in an unhurried way, take the time we need to to listen and teach and, and, and educate. So can you talk a little bit about what brings women in to see you? Sure. I think most of the women who have come to see me so far in my new practice um, are looking for answers, you know, outside of a Western medical model. They um, appreciate my background and my knowledge, but are interested in complementary therapies too. So it's a wide variety. I've had a number of people from my old practice stay on with me just because they want to continue care. I've seen a lot of new faces of women who are interested in, you know, what nutrition might have to offer them as far as helping with their gynecologic concerns um, or what complementary therapies I think might be helpful for them. And that's really important, you know, and our listeners aren't privy to this, but before we jumped on this morning, one of the things that we promised we would touch on is is some of the more humorous side of things that um, Courtney may see and has seen and over the course of her, um, her experiences as a nurse midwife and, and nurse practitioner and one of the things we were laughing about was um, things that can just happen as, you know, day-to-day existence. You know, patients come into the office with, you know, different types of complaints and, and you know, doing, being a very dutiful and, um, you know, thorough uh, clinician, you're going to uh, be abreast of, of what everything can be going on. And, and I had also mentioned prior to jumping on, 
I was on a podcast last year, and it was all nursing focused. And so this particular podcast host wanted me to talk about some of my ER highlights, funny things, things that are PG rated so that everyone can hear and not be concerned about them. And, you know, I would love to ask you because obviously, you've been doing more um, internal pelvic exams than than I did as a nurse practitioner student. What's the most interesting thing you've ever found on a pelvic exam? Um, that wasn't supposed to be there. Let me preface that. Um, small metal parts. Oh, that I I believe were probably part of a sex toy that was used and might have been hanging out in there a long time. Oh, yeah, oh, goodness. and oh. Um, had been causing a bacterial infection. But oh. after we looked around for a while, I I found the cause of of that bacterial <laughs> infection. <laughs> And then we, we got to have some conversations about that. So that was great. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. And you always think about it's that trust thing. It's like, okay, I, I might have gotten something in a place it's not supposed to be. I can't get it out. Now I need help. Yeah. Um, I think my best story, my PG best story was years ago when I was an ER nurse in Baltimore. And I had a very, when I say very innocent nursing student with me, so innocent, like, Every time we had to do something, she was always, everything was shock and awe. And so we went in to take care of this lovely woman who came in in heart failure, which means she had fluid on her lungs and we needed to give her medication to um, alleviate some of the fluid. And so, you know, part of that is putting in a tube into the, into your bladder to drain, uh, to bring, drain out fluid that we're pulling out of the body with powerful medications. And my student was at a point where she was completely able to do a Foley catheter by herself. And so I wanted her to feel empowered. And so I, you know, we, we talked through it. I was like, you've done these 20 times. I want you to feel empowered. Go in there, tell her what you're going to do and do it. And a few minutes later, she comes out and she has that typical kind of bewildered look on her face. And she was like, I really think you need to see this. And I was like, okay. And so she was like, I don't even know how to describe to you what I just saw. And I was like, okay. And so I'm bracing myself because working in the inner city, you occasionally see really crazy things. So mentally trying to get myself ready, get my game face on because that's the most important piece because you don't ever want the patient to feel uncomfortable. And then you bite the inside of your cheek and you go in. And this lovely woman who was elderly had put a potato into her vagina to help hold up her uterus. Now, think about it, you know, city folk sometimes don't have the means to go get annual exams or do any type of healthcare. So they are finding a workable solution for a problem. The funny thing is that the potato think about what potatoes do in warm, moist environments that are dark. They sprout. Yum. So <laughs> my student, I'm not sure my student did another Foley catheter for a very long time. But I had to have this conversation. And I said, Mrs. Mrs. X, um, did you know that you had a potato in your vagina? She goes, Oh, yes, I had the potato there because it holds up my and she didn't know what the uterus was called. She was like, it holds out my innards. And so we had this whole conversation. You know, I got the Foley catheter in. I walked out and told my attending, we need GYN to come downstairs because we're not about to attempt to remove the potato. I mean, it, it had gotten, as you can imagine, a sprouted potato. There were all sorts of, you know, peculiarities that we had to work around. But that was probably my non-sex toy story that, you know, forever has been immortalized. I always share with my nursing students. Um, I sometimes will share as a party game if people want to hear like funny PG stories related to ER medicine. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a, you know, it, it can definitely be an interesting bodily orifice for which people to, um, 
or which people put things in that don't belong there. Yep. Yeah, no doubt that uh, nursing student is still telling that story oh. today. Oh, too, <laughs> if you could have seen her face, she was just like, something is wrong. I'm like, okay. And she was like, I can't even describe it. I was like, okay. So oh, I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about some more of the quote unquote normal things that we've been seeing. So I've had this interesting experience with several clients now who are young women um, in their late teens, early 20s who come to see me for anxiety and depression. And upon digging a little deeper, many of them have had some sort of um, contraceptive device placed in them within the past year or so. I'm just wondering if you have seen any of that too, any of this associated anxiety and mood issues with women who have these types of contraceptive devices in their body. Yes, yes, that's that's a great observation, Kelly. So I think in general, uh, younger women are doing a better job at exploring different types of contraception. Um, I haven't been a midwife forever, but I've been a midwife for about 10 years. And I think traditionally we have always just um, thought of the pill as the mm-hmm. main choice of contraception mm-hmm. for all women, but especially when you think about young women too. And, um, and teens and young women are now doing a much better job of exploring different types of contraception. And we're using long-term contraception a lot more in younger women too. And that includes IUDs which traditionally I would say IUDs uh, have mostly been used by women in their 30s and 40s who might be spacing out between pregnancies or done having children, but um, but they're becoming more and more popular with young women because it's a great choice for them not wanting to get pregnant for a number of years. And so there's definitely been a, a big increase in long-term contraception like the Nexplanon implants mm-hmm. and IUDs, both with hormones and without. Um, it, you know, so I, I think we're doing a better job um, of giving younger women options, but it kind of goes back to the the time that it takes to really educate women mm-hmm. well, um, one thing they don't realize is that a lot of that hormonal contraception really does have implications for other areas of mm-hmm. their health. Um, and, you know, I'm not the expert in mental health, but I, I think it's probably fair to say, Kelly, you can agree with me that in general, anxiety and depression are increasing among young people. And that's yeah, probably sure. independent from contraceptive use. But as we see contraceptive use increasing in young people, which generally is a good thing, and we also see anxiety and depression increasing in young people, there there definitely are connections between mm-hmm. those two things. And, and um and it just it takes a lot of time to really educate women about this. Again, when you, in a regular medical model, when a young woman comes in for contraception, boy, she needs so much time and education to really talk through all these choices. I love being able to do that, but um, in, in most environments, it's it's just so hurried that you, you can't quite discuss everything. But there's a definite connection between the suppression of ovulation mm-hmm. and um, and also just the synthetic hormones in general. Um, which can be related to depression. So um, those things really do go hand in hand. You know, and it's interesting because I, you know, in the last year, I've taken on quite a few younger women, you know, women in their 20s. And the amount of women on synthetic hormones that are depressed and anxious that have got gut health issues, 
Um, and, and certainly, I, I know, Kelly, this is not my area of expertise. So certainly, um, I definitely want you to chime in. But trying to explain to them, I recognize because I was one of these people when I started becoming sexually active, I didn't want to get pregnant. And you know, most late teens, early 20s, that's really peak fertility. So I understand the utility of wanting to be on a reliable form of birth control. Uh, but the irony is that there are all these downstream effects, you know, the the terrible PMS, the, you know, once you start impacting sex hormone binding globulin, then your libido goes south. That's the irony. It's like I go on something to prevent pregnancy, but now I have no libido. Um, and then, you know, just the impact of, um, you know, the, the hormonal endocrine impact of all of these synthetic hormones uh, and our, you know, how we view the world, you know, the, the way that we view the world, our anxiety going up and, and how much of this is related to the, the very highly processed diets that most people, most Americans are, are eating. Um, we just finished writing a book and I think the statistic was 80% of the food that is purchased in the United States is processed. So yeah, so really just mind blowing all these implications. But Kelly, I'd love to hear from your perspective, you know, things and shifts or, you know, trends that you're seeing in your practice as well. Yeah, it it echoes a lot of what you just said. And in addition to that, many of these young women who are coming in have weight gain as a primary concern as well. And again, we can say that there are a number of different factors, including what our food sources look like now Mm -hmm. what we're choosing to purchase but also definitely this hormonal connection too and you know Courtney I'm curious do women especially the younger women do they come to you looking for other options for contraception um, yes, I think I think young women are curious about all their options. I mean, there definitely is a lot of young women who just, you know, I, I don't want to get pregnant and I need something that's going to fit easily into my life. I, I think all women can relate to the fact that there are no perfect answers in the world of contraception, right? There is no one perfect choice. There's no one perfect answer. And so mm-hmm. it's really a matter of finding what's going to work for this particular woman at this particular time. So, um, you know, I definitely can do menstrual education and fertility awareness with a young woman, but that is just not going to fit into her life right now while mm-hmm. she's in college and up until 1am, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's really a matter of, of finding what's going to work for this woman at this time. And there might be a time for a non-hormonal IUD and there might be a time for a uh, next plan on, and there mm-hmm. might also be a time for fertility awareness. Um, there's also time for vasectomy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, oh, yes. you know, so it's, it's really figuring out, um, you know, how to support women and in each season, where they're at, how to, you know, best find a choice that's going to work for them right now. And even for women who do choose um, hormonal contraception, um, just to be aware of these side Mm -hmm. effects, how can we support you? Um, You know, now I have the time to really counsel you, okay, well, what supplements can you be taking to help Mm -hmm. support your body if you're going to be Mm -hmm. using hormonal contraception? What things should you be looking out for? When should you seek somebody to help you with mental health, let's say? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Oh, it's so important. And I'm glad that you're able to have those kinds of discussions. Now, one of the things that has come up for me recently, um, with a, a few of my clients, just ironically, and it's ironic that we're talking to you today, because it makes it that much more um, important to have this conversation, because I know that they'll want to listen to this podcast. Um, when women are having issues after childbirth, and I know we're completely switching gears again, uh, but there's just a wealth of information with you. Um, and women are dealing with problems like cystoceles and rectoceles after giving birth. 
Um, how are you able to help them? I, I know the one woman in particular that I was talking to yesterday was really most interested in trying to address these concerns um, non-surgically, if at all possible. Right. And so I'm, I'm just finding that women are really looking for um, options beyond just, you know, being sent and referred to surgery to address these things. Right. And can we define those things too? For yes. Yes. Who aren't yes. As first. Thank you. Right. So sometimes a woman might come and see me because she um, is afraid that things are falling out mm-hmm. and that she might be having something inside of her prolapse. Sometimes women will come and um, have specific cur- concerns about leaking urine. Um, what I find most of the time is that women don't bring this up at all uh, until I ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes women just assume that because they're getting older or because they've had children that these things are normal. And uh, and what I always tell them is just because they're common does not be does not mean that it's normal. I love um, that. And so often they won't even bring it up at all until I say, do you have any trouble leaking urine? Or, mm-hmm. do, you know, and then and then they'll start talking. Um, so that's important as healthcare providers that we do a good job asking a lot of questions. So um, first, it's important to figure out through history taking what kind of incontinence women mm-hmm. are having. So there's different types. So most commonly, you have stress incontinence, and that is when we sneeze or cough or are forced to do jumping jacks in exercise class. Like, or, yes, do your kegels, do your kegels. Okay. So, you know, under those stresses, then we begin to leak urine, and that's that stress incontinence. There's also urge incontinence, and that happens when a woman um, feels the urge that she has to use the bathroom, and if she doesn't go right now, she'll leak. Mm-hmm. Once you get that urge, if you can't hold it in, that's urge incontinence. Uh, you can have both stress and urge incontinence, of course. And then there's also fecal incontinence, which when our muscles get really weak, somebody might not even be able to control. Um, that would be awful. Movement, and, and that happens sometimes too. So you have to first figure out what kind of incontinence is, is going on. And, and I would say the biggest risk factors for women, um, definitely women who have had more pregnancies, mm-hmm. um, certainly vaginal birth but pregnancy in general. So even women who have had C-sections can have Mm -hmm. issues. Um, And weight and obesity um, also can make incontinence worse. So, you know, a a first approach really is, um, I would say, to get to healthy weight and to begin exercising. And and exercise and physical therapy can Mm -hmm. really improve uh, most women's issues with incontinence, um, specifically lower body exercise. And we always talk about Kegels. Um, Good old Kegels. Right. I I liken it to a woman who might say, you know, I'd like to tone my upper body Mm -hmm. and get my upper body in shape. And so she just starts doing bicep curls. (laughs) And um, (laughs) bicep curls are really important and they're part of getting your upper body in shape but they're not everything and you're not going mm-hmm. to get your upper body in shape by doing a bicep curl alone. So doing a Kegel is an important part of uh, our pelvic floor strength, but it's just one part and you, you can't fix all those problems just by doing a Kegel alone. So really thinking about general lower body exercise, squats, lunges, inner thigh exercises, just incorporating a lot of different types of lower body movement and exercise into our daily routine are all an important part of pelvic floor health. Well, I think that's so important because I think the 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 resounding 
mindset for many, many healthcare providers is, oh, just do Kegels, that will solve everything. So it's reassuring to know it's more than just doing Kegels, although the Kegels will not hurt you. Right. No, no, they're great. Go ahead. But, but that's just part of the picture. And just being a, a routine exerciser and of healthy weight is important, mm-hmm. too. And and really, um, I, again, I think midwives are, are probably better at this than, than a routine OBG way in. But mm-hmm. we refer to pelvic floor physical therapy all the time. That's really um, important. Most six-week postpartum visits will have a discussion about pelvic floor PT, maybe not after a first baby, but definitely after a second mm-hmm. baby or more. Um, and um, and that, that would be a great discussion for you to have on another podcast is with a pelvic floor PT because they do a wonderful job of really walking women through how to um, gain strength and uh, improve those symptoms. It's life-changing for so yeah. many. It really is. Right. At that point, if, if they're still having symptoms, I mean, there's an appropriate time and place to see a urogynecologist to talk about surgery and things, you know, but, um, but there's a, a lot of preventive care. And there's also a lot of supportive care that we can be doing before somebody just needs to have surgery. Yeah, for sure. Well, Courtney, we so appreciate your time here today, and we'd like to ask you one final question, and that is, could you please provide us with two tips that you'd like our listeners to know for improving their health every day? Well, um, I guess I'll think personally here. I, putting myself to bed earlier at night mm, <laughs> and so getting good. getting a better night's sleep um, and probably just eating more vegetables, reminding myself to eat more vegetables during the day. I think those are pretty good places for most people to start. <laughs> Absolutely. And they can go a long way to all kinds of health too. Well, can you tell people where they can find you? Because I'm sure they'll want to learn more about what you do. Sure. So my website is CourtneyHasseman.com. For women locally here in Northern Virginia, I have an office in downtown Leesburg. And um, otherwise, I'm able to do some consultations and nutritional therapy online. Um, You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Courtney Hasseman. Well, Courtney, it was such a pleasure to connect with you this morning. Like I said, I'm sure we could talk for hours about all the fascinating things that you're doing. But thank you so much for carving a little bit of time out of your morning to uh, talk to our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much, Cynthia and Kelly. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find out more about Cynthia and her work at chtwellness.com. And you can find out more about Kelly and her work at everydaytherapist.com. In addition, if you have questions for us or topics you'd like us to address, please email us at everydaywellnesspodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, be well.